Hey everyone, this is Ksenia Montan and welcome to another episode of People of Marketing podcast. I'm the founder and CEO of Planable, the collaboration tool for social teams, and I launched this podcast to take a sneak peek into the lives of marketers that really inspire me. So every week we explore the story of their careers, the choices, mistakes, wins, and imperfections of their work life. My guest today is Kevin Young. He joined The Economist in April 2019 as head of social media, leading a team of 10 people and more than doubling social referrals in six months. He now spearheads the newsroom's digital growth in a new role as head of audience. He devises editorial strategies for social output, newsletters, push alerts, and SEO, as well as developing the organization's presence on new platforms and exploring other digital opportunities. Kevin's team was actually nominated at the Drum Online Media Awards 2020 for Social Media Team of the Year, an award that he actually received in 2018 in his previous role at Bloomberg. Prior to this, Kevin spent 15 years at the BBC as a digital journalist and broadcaster. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on People of Marketing. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Yes. So I'm so, so excited to talk to you and learn a bit more about how you got where you are, uh, you know, being nominated twice uh, for <laughs> leading, you know, the social media team of the year. That is exceptional. Um, and I want to talk a bit about your career. I want to, you know, walk a bit through your career and try to connect the dots. And the first question I want to I wanna ask you is, what would you say was your first interaction with with journalism, with media, with digital? What got you into into this space in the first place? Sure. Well, um, the funny thing is, I always loved the radio, and um, I can't really remember a specific moment when I decided I wanted to be on the radio. But from about the age of seven, I used to listen to it. There was a uh, there still is a, a really popular radio station called Radio One in the UK, uh, and it played all the pop music and had all the stars on, and I was just fascinated by it. And I used to record some of the programs. Um, there's a whole generation of us, I think, who uh, used to sit with the uh, the Top 40 chart show on the radio and the cassettes uh, in the tape recorder, um, ready to press, press record. Uh, and listen to our favorite songs and then be able to go back and listen to them all week. So I did that. I even went further and I had my own make-believe radio station in my bedroom where I was introducing my records to myself. And uh, my family humored me on that. Um, uh, you know, to some people, I suppose that would be a bit embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but it was when I started working in broadcasting that I realized actually lots of other people had been doing exactly the same. You know, <laughs> there were loads of us who were pretending to have radio stations in our bedrooms. And so really I, I found my my tribe, I guess, when I started working in radio. Um, and then um, in terms of journalism specifically, I was very interested in events. We used to get a newspaper every day in the house and I would read that. Um, and when I was about 15 or 16, I realized I would need to choose a career. Um, and the first journalism degrees were beginning at universities in the UK. Um, and I chose one of those. And I, I guess I really did commit at that point. If you do other courses, you have options for what you might want to do if you pick a journalism degree you're really narrowing things down quite severely yeah um, so fortunately it worked out but that was the choice I made when I, I guess I was 15 16 17. Got it got it and I want to talk a bit about your journey as well you know um, I always love asking people this question like we've all had this very seemingly insignificant event or they appeared to be insignificant at that time in our in our lives but they actually went and, and you know changed our lives. And looking backwards, we realized that it's a huge milestone for us. Did you have anything like that? What's you know what's yours uh, seemingly insignificant event? Yeah, well, there were a couple. First of all, when I was in the third year of high school, so I was about fifteen, everybody had to do a couple of weeks of work experience. Um, and I was quite good at math, so I was offered a place at an accounting firm, um, but I was also quite good at reading the small print on things, and I saw that you could arrange your own work experience if you knew someone who wanted to approach a company individually. Um, so I uh, ended up going to the local 
BBC radio station and then the local commercial station as well. And um, that commercial radio station was tiny. It was in the Scottish borders called Radio Borders. It's still there. It was based in a porter cabin um, outside of town. And um, I ended up working there for six years because um, I had a series of people having faith in me, um, really. I had a teacher who drove me to the radio station on a Monday night so that I could go and present a program. I had a news editor who tried me out when I was very young and sent me out with a tape recorder to go and interview, you know, counsellors at boring meetings and that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, And I guess nobody, nobody promised the world, but there were small opportunities like that that really opened doors. And then I guess one thing that really stands in my mind was that when, um, I guess about the end of the 90s, so kind of 95, 96, 97, um, the Guardian newspaper used to have this really, really big section on a Monday that was a media section. And it had all the jobs. So before the internet, this was basically where you would look to try and find a, a job in the media. And there was a tiny advert that was genuinely not much bigger than a postage stamp for a newsreader at the KISS radio station, sort of famous dance music station in London. But there were three KISS radio stations. Um, and so this one was based in uh, Leeds in the north of England. But the job was to read the news in, in, on the radio in London. So you'd be in Leeds, but on air in London. Um, and I saw this tiny job advert and I applied for it and I got it. And then I'd only been in Leeds for four months when there was a takeover of the radio station. And basically I was transferred to London um, after four months. So I was 22 years old. I had thought in my heart of hearts, maybe by the time I was 30 years old, I might end up in London, but I was 22. <laughs> I was on the radio in London. I was living in London. Um, the it dream really life. was a, a dream life. And that was, you know, that was really the, you know, a, a, a tiny thing, just spotting it. If I hadn't bought the newspaper that day, I would never have seen the job. And that really did change everything. Yeah. So walk us a bit through what happened afterwards. Like, how did you transition from radio to everything else that you've been doing since then? And how did you get into, you know, social media? And um, how did you end up with the economies? Like, walk us through your uh, career a bit. Sure. So I was then in London. um, And from the age of about 22 to 25, I was getting up at 3.45 a.m. every day to do the news on the radio. Wow. Um, (laughs) Because in radio, uh, the biggest audiences are in the morning, right? So TV, you get the biggest audience. Makes sense. Uh, Yeah. And so it was... um, so it was a great honor to be doing the news uh, in the morning, but I was going to bed at about 7.30 every evening. And um, it, it really was a case of my focusing on the career and not really having a life. Um, <laughs> and so I decided to look for a nine to five, which is very unusual in the world of journalism. And I ended up um, moving into PR for five years. So I went, went to work for the BBC in London. Um, but I worked for uh, an entertainment magazine called Radio Times, which is really famous in the UK. It's one of the oldest magazines in the world. And um, it was a great place to learn about celebrity culture and news management, particularly because I was doing PR and I was trying to place stories with with newspapers and other journalists and, and fight fires, as we used to say, when things went wrong. And so I learned a bit about crisis management. Um, and, and I carried on the BBC in a, in a role at uh, BBC World News, the TV channel doing PR there. And that was great because I got to travel around the world with some of the BBC correspondents and um, organise trips for them and really get involved in, in a lot of stuff. But I, I was missing the newsroom as a journalist. And after five years in PR, I went back into, into journalism. And I was then working in the BBC's uh, main newsroom doing online journalism, which was really starting to take off working on the BBC news website and also going back and doing a bit of radio news reading as well. And I kept doing that um, for a long, long time, nearly a decade. And I was really, really happy. And it felt like online journalism really was the future. Yeah. And in about 2012, a job came up at the BBC's breaking news desk to work on social media and basically to do breaking news on, on Twitter and to run Facebook uh, and Instagram accounts, uh, which were you know very, very small and embryonic. <clears throat> and I remember saying to my wife, you know, 
I could go and learn about Twitter for six months. That might be quite interesting. And she actually <laughs> said to me, you know, you might get a bit bored of writing everything in 140 characters because you're used to writing these big long news stories. And I said, yeah, but I could try it for six months and, and see. So anyway, I, I ended up staying for three years on that desk. Um, we won, um, you know, the Drum Award for best Twitter account regularly. We covered all sorts of um, breaking news stories from around the world. Um, and so that was really um, a baptism of fire in lots of ways because the BBC is very, very exposed on, on social media. You know, people are not shy in telling you when, when they think you've done the wrong thing or you've made a mistake or you had taken an opposite view from it. Um, but anyway, that, that really concluded my 15 years at the BBC. And, and then how I got to The Economist was that in 2015, um, Bloomberg was launching a, uh, a website and social media presence in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. It's very uh, well known in the US, but not so much outside the US. Um, and so I went over to join them and um, had a great time for four years there, but um, really felt that uh, I wanted to lead a team. I wanted to be focusing on strategy. Uh, and doing some really good stuff. And, and, and then the Economist job briefly came up. Um, uh, I knew about it for a little while because somebody who was there had, had told me it was coming. And I spent about four months really forensically preparing for that job. <laughs> like I subscribed, I listened to all the podcasts, I watched all the videos. I really went into detail about the analytics, what they did on social media, where I thought they were brilliant, where I thought they could be doing better. And um, by the time I had my interviews there, I felt really, really well prepped. And like, I really wanted that job more than anything in the world. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate that, uh, that I got the job. Um, but I was also very proud of the fact that um, I'd really done my research for that. And I guess, I, I think maybe we could talk a little bit about recruitment and, and yeah. job searching and things in the industry, maybe during this conversation, because I have a few suggestions, but I think it really hopefully came across that, uh, that I wanted that job badly and that I, I prepped for it. So that's how I got where I am today. Got it. So I want to ask you if you could share a bit more about what like your day to day looks like in, in your work life. Like, what is it like to be the head of audience at The Economist? What do you do all day? <laughs> what do I, yeah, that's a very good question. I sometimes have to justify it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, well, the last six months have obviously been um, completely different from anything that we might have expected right. with, with the pandemic and the lockdown. Imagine, yeah. Um, so the team, um, not just uh, the, the team that I uh, oversee, but the, the entire newspaper uh, and website and video and, and audio operations have been working remotely since the, the, the middle of March. Um, and so that's created some challenges. I think we've done a brilliant job um, as an organization. Um, you know, the, the newspaper has gone out every week, we've been producing the most amazing journalism with insight and analysis. Um, but that has also affected the way that um, the way that we we operate. And so one of the things that I do is uh, I try and look out for the team. I try and make sure they're okay, their well-being is all right, and that also we're focusing a bit on career development as well. Because one of the mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges I think when you're not able just to walk up to someone's desk and ask their opinion on something or overhear a conversation and find out that someone's looking to do something um, is is to make sure that you still have opportunities to to develop and progress. So that's one side of things. Um, but my my role really is um, overseeing, as you said in the in the introduction, social strategy um, and newsletters, and then um, SEO and push alerts. So uh, we have a brilliant head of social media who took over um, my role um, when I was promoted up to head of audience, and he oversees the team doing the day to day. Um, activities, so um, you know, making sure that our journalism is seen on social media um, and, and presented in the right way. And I, I'm there in the background, offering a bit of direction and um, support. Um, but now, what I'm starting to focus on is uh, newsletters specifically. Um, yeah. These are really important ways of, um, I guess, directly reaching different audiences and and showcasing our journalism. Um, you know, with with social media platforms, you have to rely on on algorithms of often and, and guesswork as to whether anyone's actually seeing your, your pose. <laughs> right. uh, but with newsletters, they go straight into people's inboxes. So that's a, that's a, a great mechanism for acquiring and retaining audiences. Um, and then just on general journalism, I haven't kind of left that behind as well. So, um, you know, I, I hope my new sense is still 
valuable and important at the moment. So we're, we're talking through the best angles on stories. You know, Thursdays are a huge buzz because they're the, the day that the, the, each weekly issue is signed off and within a few hours goes live. Um, yeah. And in terms of outreach around the, the group, um, the Economist group, I'm trying to make sure that people um, in editorial work together with colleagues in marketing, uh, products, events, circulation, just making sure we're all on the same page. If someone's got a good idea, just trying to maximize the opportunities from that. And, and sometimes even just nudging people and saying, could we try this? What do you think? And, and sometimes that's how the best ideas come. You, you have, a, you have a, little, a little suggestion for something and then you realize that actually you can turn it into a really big, big thing. Right. So uh, this actually takes me to my next question. You know, you transitioned from doing uh, journalism work to now amplifying journalism work and building an audience in that space, you know, and growing a digital news brand. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how did your work life change? And like, what's the biggest difference that you're seeing for yourself? Because, you know, you mentioned earlier that um, when you initially transitioned, you know, in a position like that uh, at, at Bloomberg, you know, you're not sure if that's going to work out for you. Uh, you know, you're not sure if you can sit in those uh, 140 characters, if that might work for you. So I'm curious, what's the biggest change and the biggest difference that, that you're seeing for yourself in this new direction that you've been, you know, taking with your career? Sure. So I suppose this is more of a strategic role and yeah. almost like, um, an, an editor role in the sense that you have people who, um, and I was I was doing this for years, you know, are really on the front line of news. You know, at Bloomberg and also at the BBC, we really were measured in seconds and minutes as to how quickly we got something out. And um, I mean, Bloomberg has its wire service, which um, if you're a second ahead of um, everyone else in breaking news, that can genuinely mean um, tens of millions of dollars or more, um, you know, can change hands in that time if, if you have algorithms that are watching for headlines and events. Um, and, and there was an expression at, at uh, Bloomberg called move the markets, where you could actually um, influence the price of the, uh, you know, the, the share price or, right. you know, the, 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 the dollar could rise or fall depending on a headline that you flashed. So, I mean, that brought a lot of responsibility, um, yeah. obviously, um, and a lot of pressure. Um, so the Economist is not a breaking news organisation in in its uh, in, at its core. It's an, an analytical um, newsroom that offers oversight. And we might be an hour or two longer to produce an article that um, is about something that's happened today. But that time will have been incredibly well spent offering insight and and really going behind the headlines. So. Um, I suppose my job, um, you could use the, that analogy where I've gone from being at the forefront of output and really uh, jumping on things the second they happen as to being a bit more analytical, a bit more strategic, trying to um, look at the bigger picture and, um, and also look at the longer term, you know, what the impact of a decision that I make today or that we as an organization agree have on what we do in three months or six months or five years from now, um, as well as um, oh something's trending on Twitter. So can we, you know, re-promote that article from a month ago that talked about this and might get some new readers to us. So I suppose that's the strategy and oversight and overviews are probably the words that I would use to say how my job has changed. Um, and then just running a team as well. I mean, I, I was, you know, had, had managerial responsibility in other places I've been, but, um, you know, you always learn as a manager. I think you <laughs> always have challenges. And um, I want to make sure that, um, you know, we have a, a team that's motivated. We have people that are excited to come of to course, work in the morning yeah. and who are bringing their best creative ideas to the table as a result. Um, and so I think remembering that, um, you can have an impact on other people's lives from the responses you give or the mood that you're in or the, you know, the encouragement or lack of encouragement. I think that really can have an impact on, on others. And so it's important to, to remember that I bear a responsibility to, um, to, to keep spirits up and to make sure that people are really doing their best work and having a great time in the process. Right, right. And since you mentioned the team, I want to ask you, obviously, about the drama world. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're, the team you're leading at The Economist, as I mentioned earlier, is currently on the, on the shortlist of the drama awards, right? That's the social team of the year. 
Um, and I want to I wanna ask you uh, if you could describe, you know, what it took to get here, uh, to build, you know, um, to build such a team. And what are the ingredients and how do you, <laughs> you know, how do you recruit great individuals uh, and professionals? And I know that we talked uh, earlier before recording that, you know, it's not only about like great individuals and in themselves, it's also like the entire team um, that is, you know, bigger than just the sum of each individual. So I want to ask, you know, how do you basically, you know, that's such a macro question, but how do you build a brilliant team basically? So first of all, it's important to put awards in context, I think, because um, when you win an award, it's, it's an amazing feeling. Uh, right, when, you're, right. when you're in the room and you, um, you've lost the award or, um, you know, another organization is sweeping the boards and it becomes clear you haven't got a chance in hell, even though there's another hour and a half of the ceremony left. Um, it's, it's crushing and awful. So um, <laughs> I was very, very proud in 2018 with Bloomberg. I, I, you know, the expression jump for joy. I mean, I genuinely leapt in the air. Um, I, th I think everyone's slightly embarrassed uh, that I did, but I was so elated and it was such really a, like, Such a Shutterstock moment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and with The Economist this year, I mean, we had worked, as, a, as I've said, both during the lockdown and before it, incredibly hard. So that was just such a wonderful recognition of the team. Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of um, recruitment and advice, um, you, you definitely touched on an important point there i think that you have to be pulling together as one unit um you know yeah. if if we've got half an hour of the work day to go and there are still three or four things left to do we have a, a great team spirit where people will put their hand up and offer to help one another there's not elbowing out the way or you know um a sense that uh, you know someone is is to blame for that you know everyone else will kind of chip in and help especially when people are having tougher days than others um and I think also there's a there's within that you have to be careful that people do have responsibilities for things. So you can go too far in making everything about one unit and one team. You know, people right. if people are doing a mix of things, it's a really really positive first of all because um, you know if someone's off sick or on holiday, um, the place doesn't fall apart just because. Uh, you know, one person has gone away and they were the only person that knew how to do something. So I think it's really important that you multi-skill. Um, but then within that, to have ownership of projects or different areas or to feel that you can offer a certain amount of expertise on something specifically really yeah. helps people. I to... think I think I heard I heard that saying uh, once, you know, if there is no one responsible, there is no one <laughs> responsible. Um, so I think, you know, I, 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 I totally understand and agree with what you're saying. You, you know, you need, you need that unity in the team, but at the same time, you need like clarity on, um, on ownership and, and responsibilities. Um, I think that's important for, you know, for everyone. Yeah, and as an organization, we, we have, um, uh, uh, I don't know if this is unique, but it's certainly unusual where we don't have bylines. So, you know, on a news story, you often see the, the journalist name of someone who's, you know, the person who's written the article. The Economist basically speaks as one voice. And if you oh, open a co copy of the newspaper, yeah, or you look at a, um, a, an online article, um, we do have exceptions for that. We do invite people to contribute and write columns and, and, and um, you know, there are occasions where people's names are seen. But so how, about, whole, how about like giving, you know, like credit? How do you, you know, because there is some kind of like joy <laughs> in seeing your name. Um, so how, you know, how, how do you guys compensate on that? Uh, on that well, project? there is, the, the lines have been, um, you know, blurred a little bit in recent years because we have we have podcasts where journalists can appear um, and mm. they can talk about the, the the material, the article, the articles they've been working on. Um, social media, obviously, um, you know, if you have a Twitter account or uh, LinkedIn and you want to talk about the work that you've done, um, then that's a good place as well. But I think it's it's really part of the ethos of the Economist that the um, you know we speak with with one voice. And that doesn't mean that everybody agrees. You know, we have these um, big all-staff editorial meetings on Mondays and Fridays. Um, anybody's invited, so the editor-in-chief leads them, but anybody um, right down to the, the newest member um, of, the, of the newsroom is, is able to attend them. And also, if they have a point to make, um, to speak up, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure. You don't want to, you don't want to say the wrong thing in front of 120 <laughs> people, um, and you have to choose your moment. But um, uh, you know, we we're very collegiate, and we do reach uh, a view on things. 
Um, uh, our editor-in-chief is, is the person who has the final say, but um, she's very clear that she wants to be representative of, of the newsroom and, and um, you know, to represent what people are saying and what people are feeling. So I think within the within a team, um, you you know, the, the bigger example of, of having individual skills would be that The Economist clearly has experts in lots of different areas. Correspondents have worked not just in, in one field, but maybe in lots of different subjects, lots of different parts of the world. And they bring that knowledge and that experience, and that expertise to our reporting. Um, but ultimately, The Economist is one one voice, one organization. And, um, and so it's important that we all pull together and, um, and, and work with each other to, to make the best possible um, end product. Right. So we talked a little bit about building, you know, an amazing team. And on the other side of this question, um, I know you have a few tips and tricks and ideas and advice to share on how to get into an amazing team, how to work, you know, with an amazing team and how to get a job in an amazing organization. So I want to ask you about that a bit. It seems like you've, you know, you've had quite a lot of experience. Like I loved your story with, you know, how well you prepared, how thoroughly you prepared for, um, for the economist interview. And I think that is amazing, you know, a planable every time when we're recruiting and we get candidates that know a lot about our organization, that says a lot. Uh, that says a lot about, you know, their willingness to go the extra mile, their attention to detail. So I wanna ask you, like, what advice would you have to share on that front? Sure, well, we, um, we were relatively um, slow moving newsroom in the sense that people love working at the economy and don't move on very often. So, you know, there aren't hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of job openings at, at, um, at the organization, but we do have regular opportunities to join the social team um, because we operate what we call a fellowship scheme. Um, and that's aimed at people in their first or second roles out of university um, and gives them an opportunity to spend six months or a year with the economist and learning the ropes really of how we do everything. So we receive several dozen um, applications for that every time we advertise. And um, I think you've touched on a really important point about personalizing and making us feel like you care um, right. as, as recruiters. I would say that it's important to make sure an application is unique both to yourself and to the organization you're applying to. So what I mean by that is that for you, um, you need to make it clear that this isn't just the 17th application you've written today. Um, and that we as our application is just exactly the same as the other 16 that you wrote earlier. So you'd be surprised how many say, hello, um, I've done this, I've done this, <laughs> I've done this, I'm absolutely brilliant. And that is why I'm applying for this position. And there's nothing in there specifically to say why they're right for that role or tailored to refer to the job description even. Um, and there are also people who just use the same CV on every, or resume on every application. So um, I think it's important to adjust um, your CV so that, not that you have to start from scratch every time, but you really highlight aspects of your experience that are relevant to this job. And also that's very important if you're making a career move. Um, you know, if you spent five years working for a marketing agency, say, and suddenly you're trying to pivot to work to an editorial role, then firstly, um, you know, talk up the relevant experience you yeah. have in, in your CV and downgrade the things that aren't as relevant. So um, if, you, if you think that there's even just a small amount of stuff that you've done in your existing employer that is important for this job, then really make a thing of that. And even if you spent five years or 10 years or longer doing something different, um, just downgrade that a bit and also have some mention of the thought process in there in your cover letter right. so that we understand why you're doing it. And then I would just say also, so the other side of that is then making an application unique for us. And this touches on the, you know, your point about Planable and, and mine about applying for this job. Um, you know, what is it about the economist that specifically appeals to you? If we've got 10 or 50 or a hundred people all potentially with the same amount of experience, the same sort of background. Um, why do you want to come and work for us? You know, what is it that you've noticed about, um, if it's a social role, you know, our social accounts or our journalists, how do you think you could make what we do even better? You know, tell us what you have seen about The Economist and really make it feel like we are your dream employer 
yeah. and this is your dream job because um, the, recently when we've been recruiting, um, we've had so many people that um, didn't, ref didn't refer to The Economist at all in their application or didn't refer to social media if they were going to a social media, going for a social media position, that actually um, we were able to come up with a long list just using the people that did specifically talk about <laughs> The Economist <laughs> or social media. And so, uh, you know, maybe you have a dozen people who have, have done a really good application and have personalized it. You maybe have another 40 or 50 who haven't. Um, and, and that's basically been the, a straightforward way to draw up a, a long list when you have a, a load of people with similar you know, levels of experience. So right. I hope some of that advice is useful, but um, that it's, is, really, you know, it's really important, I think, to make, make it feel like you care. I, I love it. I mean, I subscribe to it so, so, so much. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there you go. That's the first thing you need to talk about. You know, there's somebody who applied to work on the team and said that they've been reading The Economist since they were 13, uh, you know, for probably about 10 years or so, because it was a, a, a newspaper that their family subscribed to and had on the on the coffee table all the time. And, you know, you could say that sort of thing and bluff, I guess. But, um, but you know, it's such when, a nice story, you know, such a it's nice, nice story. And when we when we asked them about that, they, you know, they were able to back up that mm. uh, claim with evidence, you know, so that worked very well. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's um, it, it really does. It really does make a difference. Yeah. One last follow up questions on the subject uh, that I have just out of curiosity. You know, if you're looking at their experience, if someone is applying on a social media position and you're looking at their experience, what kind of metrics or success do you want to see from them? Uh, if from their, you know, previous roles, if they had previous roles in social, uh, you know, uh, like what kind of like KPIs or, you know, I've grown this page or I've grown the audience by this and that. Uh, is there any kind of like numbers that you're looking for? Sure. Well, I think so. First of all, I would say looking at The Economist more widely as a newsroom, um, we often say in our job ads that you don't need journalistic experience to be mm -hmm. a reporter. So um, we, we've been talking quite specifically about the social team there. But also, I think it's interesting to note that The Economist welcomes applications from people in, um, in other relevant fields who may not have a lot of experience, um, you know, doing court reporting or, or you know, being at, at the front line of, of press conferences or whatever, but someone, people who can work for think tanks, people who are economists, people who have expertise in data journalism, who are great video producers or whatever, you know. So um, I would, first of all, I would say that um, being specific about the experience that's relevant to this role is important, but you can have a wide variety of experience that makes you, um, makes a job applicable to you and would make you a good potential hire. So um, I think that um, getting competitive about whether you've increased an audience by 50% or, you know, grown by a million followers or whatever is, is good to know, but ultimately is not going to be the single thing that propels you ahead of someone else in a shortlist. Um, yeah. It's going to be about how you make us um, understand the values that you would bring to the job, the qualities. Um, and so I think, I think it's important to, it's important to talk about your achievements, but targets I think in journalism are quite dangerous. And, you know, we don't set targets on our output. You know, I don't say to the team, right, we need 10,000 retweets on this by lunchtime or somebody's fired, you know, I mean, it just doesn't work like that. Right, and right. also it's not, um, it's, that's not a good way to do journalism. You know, The Economist is a very responsible publisher. We, we set the agenda and we write about topics that we think the world should know about. Um, and we're not going to suddenly write an article with the title, why the sky is blue, because yeah. we think that people are searching for it and it will do really well for us over the next three years on SEO purposes, <laughs> yeah, right. you know. So I think um, that's a long answer to your question, but basically the, the point is um, talk about successes, um, but don't get too bogged down in, in whether something's gone up or down by a certain number of percentage points. You know, just tell us why you're right for the job. And, and show some responsibility, show some understanding of what we're doing. You know, don't talk about, uh, you know, The Economist is not on TikTok, for instance. You know, don't, if, if we ask you to, if we ask you to, to pitch a, a social campaign for 
you know, a cover article or something, then don't spend 90% of it talking about how great it would look with a viral video on TikTok when we're not actually on that platform. You know, it's that sort of thing that, 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 but the research part as well, you know, yeah, the, the research, research. Yeah, that's yeah. more important than a, than a specific KPI. Right. I would say. right. Good. So moving on to my, to my next question, I have like a personal curiosity. So I've been, I, I did, you know, social media before, uh, before starting Planable, I had a social media marketing agency and I've been doing content and social for FMCG brands, like brands from very different industries than the one that you're, you're currently, uh, you know, leading. So I'm curious, what do you see as a difference? As, you know, the, the differences that you see between leading social at the news brand uh, versus an FMCG brand or any other brand, actually any other industries, you know, maybe there's something about like, uh, I think you touched upon that, uh, upon that subject a bit with like the KPIs and the metrics, but maybe there's some other, you know, differences in, in strategies and in approaches and in, in the way you're thinking about the brand and the social, what's common and, and you know, what's not? Well, um, I think you, you're right that the targets we've, we've talked about, so that would be one thing. Uh, we don't want to pull numbers out of the air really and, um, and focus too much on, on those for specific uh for specific news stories or campaigns obviously the marketing teams and the advertising teams do have targets for things but um but that's slightly different on the editorial side i would say there are similarities um there are some similarities that i would point out um i guess staying classy and mm. maintaining a brand reputation um are important um and i think also transparency you know the economist if, if we make a mistake we we correct it and we do what we call an editor's note or we we have some kind of acknowledgement on an article that we have changed something and we messed up um hopefully that's not you know there are, there are different degrees of messing up uh, so hopefully it's it's more uh you know on the light the odd, side <laughs> the odd typo than actually you know the whole basis of the story being wrong but i think that you could apply that to brands as well that um yeah you know there's there's a there's often a backlash um when something's been missed missed timed or ill-judged um and you know you're going to take a hit for that you're going to be criticized but i think that uh, transparency and being open about your processes and admitting that something's gone well or something's gone badly or or that you've done something or changed something that's important um, i think that that can actually work in your advantage and uh I, I remember we sent a newsletter to our audience at some point you know uh, a few months ago and we had like a huge typo in the in the subject line or something something was wrong with the newsletter and we sent it to our entire audience and then we had to like follow up with an email to apologize and i think that's a good opportunity to like show your human side right to be a bit more vulnerable here you know everyone makes mistakes and we've made that mistakes and you know here we are you know it had to happen at some point in time if you want to feel a bit better about that i was once um in the bbc newsroom and um it was very late uh, in the evening it was the end of a week of long shifts for me <laughs> i was about 10 minutes away from going that's, home that's when it happens <laughs> you could tell um and also it wasn't that dark it wasn't that light in the newsroom it was you know it's like 11 <laughs> at night anyway somebody sent me a uh a, a push alert check and um basically facebook had just bought whatsapp mm. and um the push alert was supposed to read that facebook had bought the messaging service whatsapp but a small e and a small a look very very similar when it's dark and it's late and it's tired so i actually approved a push alert that said that facebook had bought the massaging service uh WhatsApp. <laughs> and this was then sent to six million phones oh my god um, i love and... this story it makes me feel better it does <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know people started taking screen grabs on twitter and you know uh, we sent another one out um afterwards but then of course the, the, that then drew attention to the fact that there was something wrong with the first one and you know made people go back to the first one and say why have they <laughs> sent it again you know five minutes later and um fortunately everybody took that in good humor and yeah. with grace and my boss um at the time uh, I, I basically i went to bed at midnight and i woke up at about 7 a.m dreading what, <laughs> what email might await me and he basically laughed it off and he was very good about it um and you know uh, that was that was bad i so it's an example of um 
you know, you could come back from that. If you make a proper mistake, then obviously you need to own up. But there are there are ways to stay classy even if you've screwed up. So right. I would say that's important. And then you, you asked about some, some other differences. I would yeah. say just a couple of things. Um, um, maybe in terms of viral content, like what we do or what we consider to be viral would be different from perhaps an agency or a, a brand. You know, we don't go in for for memes quite as much and we're not <laughs> trying to present jokey things. But um, our, our stuff goes viral because we have incredible data analysis or we have some insight about uh, about the pandemic or something else from our journalism. And so people are sharing, um, you know, rigorous analysis that's carefully researched and is really insightful. And that for us can can be viral, but, um, you know, we're not sort of sending out jokey videos um, you know, that, that yeah. people are sharing. Um, and I guess also, um, finally on this, I would say The Economist, the Economist has a voice um, and we've, you know, we write leaders that uh, give our opinion on current events and, and our view on how we would change them. And so I'm not always sure that brands have a voice in the mm-hmm. same way. Like you, you often see, um, I mean, Ben and Jerry's got into trouble in the UK recently, or, or was or certainly was was criticised by some in the UK for having a view on migrants, and and there were other organisations that have kind of spoken out about things, and and that I, that seems to have more of a backlash and is more risky than the economist right. saying, um, you know, this is what should happen on X story, or this is who we believe should be the next US president or whatever. So. Um, I think that um, I think there are differences in the in the tone and in the in the opinionated side of things too. So I actually want to ask you about this a bit a bit more. Like, what's your view on on you know this trend of brands becoming publishers and you know getting into that space of you know having a voice and having opinions about different subjects and just creating content in a publisher manner almost. Um, we see so many brands out there doing that more and more, and I'm super interested to, you know, learn what's your take on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Journalists have often done, um, I mean, I did this, didn't I? I've, I've told you about it. I crossed the line into, right. into PR, um, partly because I needed some more sleep at night and some more <laughs> regular hours, and actually the money was a bit better. Um, but I think it's been interesting how companies have often turned to journalists in areas such as communications or yeah. internal comms, right. um, you get big firms with um, you know, tens of thousands of employees, like banks or multinationals. They're looking to journalists to make videos for staff or to help to uh, hone their corporate messages. And so um, I think it's very interesting that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking quite so much about the, what they're actually saying there or the tone that they're taking, whatever. But I think it's interesting that that brands are turning to journalists to help them. And also, if you look at politics, you often have seen people making the move into the government or the civil service, you know, having a strong news sense and the ability to rebut a right. negative story or at least put someone's side across or deal with crisis management. Um, those are often very appealing um, opportunities for journalists and uh, you know who perhaps have got tired of working strange hours or whose jobs are under threat because there are always cuts and so um, I think I think it's very interesting how brands are reaching out to journalists and helping uh, and asking journalists to help them um, right. build editorial teams or get their messages across even if it's for their staff or you know or then if it's about a wider kind of communications uh, message. Right. So I have one last question for you before we wrap up with our uh, rapid fire session. And it's a, it's a quite a controversial question, but I, I, I love asking it. Um, and the question is, you know, what's, um, what's one belief or like a trend uh, today in social or in communications and in, in journalism, generally in the media world? Uh, what's one popular trend or buzzword that you think is like massively overrated or that you disagree with? If I said the word influences to you, <laughs> with, I, might, I, might, I might not make any friends here. Basically, so the economist is an influencer, right? We're 177 years old. We've been around right. the clock a few yeah. times. We that know a few sense. things. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully if we say something, then you, you would actually believe us and think right. it's important. Um, but there are, there are a lot of people out there who claim to be influencers and really, really are they? You know, someone yeah. who's done a few TikTok clips and then suggests they're the voice of a generation. 
um, or who've posted a few shots of them sitting by a pool and claim yeah. to be a travel influencer. I mean, why should we really care about that? And also, I guess it's very annoying if you're a business yeah. and you're bombarded with requests for free stuff. Um, and I think that also leads on to another thought, which is about bluffing um, and, <laughs> and presentation. So like, we all, we all like to talk ourselves up. And, yeah. and clearly, you know, everybody wants to highlight their best skills. But sometimes you do have people who just aren't very good at what they do. And it becomes obvious if you work with them or they, they, they don't pull their weight in a team environment um, or they claim to be experts at something and then, you know, were really shown up when they were around other people who were. Um, and that can, be, that can be quite galling. But then sometimes you see them bounce back and claim to be incredible, um, even though... You know, they might have they might have not done very well in another job, and you just see them on social media say, "Hey, I'm amazing. You should hire me." Yeah. Um, I guess you have to admire that sort of resilience, but it happens more often than you might think. So, um, I would just say that people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk um, become <laughs> exposed when they are surrounded by uh, really, really talented groups of people. And I've been very, very fortunate all through my career to be, um, you know, surrounded by very, very clever people who I've learned a lot from and who have taught me a lot but um you know if people aren't pulling their weight in those sorts of environments it can it can actually drag a team down and yeah. so it's um it's it's interesting to to observe that but influencers i think are more annoying <laughs> that's such a great answer and i i think you're not the first one you know if, if that helps you're not the first one to have the beef with influencers <laughs> on this show <laughs> Um, good. So uh, let's. Well, I'm not going to be very influential with that answer then, if everybody else is saying it. <laughs> not everybody else, but yeah, we've had a few people that uh, you know are uh, <laughs> annoyed, little bit annoyed by influencers. Um, so let's wrap up. I have four questions for you. You know, quick questions, quick answers. Okay. And the first one is, if you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today, uh, you know, uh, social and journalism and all of that, what else would you do? Oh, this is really difficult because all I've ever done is the media um, and I don't think I'd, I mean, I think I would probably go back and read the news on the radio or do something else, but possibly, um, possibly trying to do some good um, or working in politics or civil service, not, not being a politician, but trying to um, make things happen. Um, Still good for, for the society in a way, yeah, not, I mean, very, not, not very far away from what you're doing today. Ex exactly. <laughs> who, who doesn't need a head of audience uh, in their lives? Um, but no, I mean, that, sounds, that makes me sound incredibly worthy, uh, doesn't it? And like, I'm trying too hard. But um, I think I would hope that I would have some kind of positive impact Got on it. people's lives. That's a, yeah, that's a great answer. Um, and the second one is, uh, what's, you know, your favorite app or tool that you use at work? So we have an absolute genius of a colleague who is an analytics supremo, and she has built several <laughs> dashboards for us showing everything from Ooh, internal tools. I love yeah, that. Exactly. It's a, state, a trade secret as to how they work. Um, uh, but they show everything from, I don't know, referrals for articles through to the subscriber journeys, signups for newsletters, that sort of thing. Um, and Google Analytics form a big part of that. And it's, um, she's really made our lives so much easier <laughs> to, to go into the data and forensic detail. Um, but I would also say I, I, do, um, I do like the BBC Sounds app, although it's really annoying and it crashes um, more times than it should. But um, because I've loved the radio, um, yeah. I, I kind of wish when I was growing up, there was something like that. And I could have all my favorite programs in one place because I do right. like to, to those at work as well. That's, that's how you know when you, you really love an app when it's, you know, crashes and you still use it. <laughs> Come on, BBC, you need to sort this out. So it's about 12 minutes into every use of the BBC Sounds app, it basically crashes. Oh, uh, I can my morning walk, I can time the point in the park where I'll get to when the music stops. That's Come so on, funny. That's so funny. Um, okay, my next question, uh, my next rapid fire question is: What's your favorite social media network? Like your favorite personal social media network? Oh, um, so I love them all equally. Obviously, uh, it's like having children. Um, mm -hmm. No, I think I don't know. I'm going to be really awkward about this and not give a favorite one because I think they're all good in different ways. And I would, I would answer that with a sort of, I would flip that around. And I would say that one thing is really important to do is to make sure you have time away from social media yeah. and also not to live your entire life online. So clearly like social media are very important, but um, I guess the, along the, the lines of the influencer comments, you know, people who stay classy by keeping something back and who yeah. do admit that, 
you can have time on a Saturday for not being on Twitter arguing with someone about something. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty good and pretty important. So um, yeah, but I, I think you know the, the four platforms that I love uh, the most are Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn because they're the ones that uh, that we focus on at yeah. the Economist. Got it. Um, and my last question is what's the worst advice you've ever received? <laughs> uh, never appear on a podcast. Oh God. Uh, no, I'm, joking. <laughs> I'm so happy you didn't follow it. <laughs> I'm jo- no, I'm joking. Um, uh, yeah, cause this has been really fun actually. So yeah, I was completely, I was uh, making that up. Um, I suppose, um, that broken promises are probably something that, might count as bad advice basically when managers don't um, break promises or break them. yeah well no <laughs> yeah so so what i what i mean is when managers lead you to believe that certain opportunities will be made available to you and then they don't follow through on that you basically so advice would be to you know stay with the stay with the company you know with great uh, things are going to happen in five years time got um it. and then uh, and sometimes things change for for good reasons and that's okay but i think if you if you repeatedly put your faith in people who don't uh help you to progress and it can damage you know your faith in them but also the kind of working relationships that you have and i think bosses bosses should also remember that um people really do hang on your words when you're asked for advice and um, when they're looking for guidance on what might be in the pipeline for them so so i would think um so, so some of the worst advice I've, I've received would be to have faith in something that didn't then yeah. happen. Um, and yeah. I would think that's a good thing to remember for, for managers around the world, all of whom I'm sure are tuned into this podcast and listening to my every word. Yeah, that's, that's a great advice about bad advices. <laughs> um, this was such, such a great conversation. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to just share your story. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think we could have talked for hours. Um, <laughs> I, I really appreciate you took the time to just come on the show and share your journey with our audience. Thank you. No problem. It's been really fun. And for everyone else listening in, thank you so much for joining. And I hope you, you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed chatting with Kevin. And don't forget, we have new episodes every Wednesday. Subscribe to People of Marketing on your favorite podcast app and keep being awesome.